We have taken our time, but this morning we end with the final few verses. Our text this morning is Philippians chapter 4, verses 20 through 23. If you have a Bible, as always, I'd encourage you to open it up and follow along, as, uh, not only as I read, but as uh, I preach through, so that you can look at specific words and phrases. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you but would like to use one, you'll find a Bible in the seat in front of you underneath, and you'll find our passage on page 982. Paul writes this, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever, amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Well, Paul has just finished uh, a pretty profound section. He has just thanked them for a gift that they provided through Epaphroditus, but has said, although I needed the gift, and, and although uh, the gift was, is greatly, uh, uh, it, it has greatly supplied me, and, and although it has uh, given me more than I could have ever needed, and although I profoundly am grateful for it, nevertheless, I felt no sense of need because through the power of Christ, I've learned to be content in any and all circumstances. And, and he has just finished saying, and, and my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And then he concludes that section there with what we call a doxology in verse 20. A doxology is simply praise to God. We sang one earlier in the service, the Gloria Patri. We sometimes, I'm sure you are all familiar with what is just called simply the doxology. A doxology is praise to God and what we see here is really this doxology, I think, not only follows on what Paul has just said, but really follows on what he has said throughout this entire letter. Paul's doxology, in other words, his praise to God, is rooted in his theology. His doxology is rooted in his theology. Biblically speaking, doxology and theology always go together. John Stott puts it well. He says, on the one hand, there can be no doxology without theology. All true worship is a response to the self-revelation of God in Christ and Scripture. On the other hand, there should be no theology without doxology. There is something fundamentally flawed about a purely academic interest in God. Our place is on our faces before him in adoration. We see something similar in Romans chapter 11. Romans, of course, if you've ever read it or studied it, you know Romans is jam-packed with theology. Uh, it is a gigantic, rich theological treatise. And Paul in Romans 9 to 11, he, he gets really deep into uh, deep theology that is uh, somewhat difficult to understand. Uh, he talks about God's sovereign choice in election. And he talks about how 
In God's sovereignty, he has rejected Israel for a while and has grafted in the Gentiles. And then he concludes that section after talking about his sovereign election and Israel's unbelief and the grafting of the Gentiles into the people of God with this, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That's Paul, it it seems like, is just erupting in praise after everything that he has just said is true about God. That's if you've, one way to look at our worship service here is is you can look at it uh, structured in different ways. Uh, But one way to look at it is that it is really uh, theology and then doxology, just repeated over and over again. We begin with a call to worship, theology, which then leads to song, doxology, which then leads to a prayer of invocation, theology, which then leads to more singing, doxology, which then leads to scripture reading, theology, which then leads to more doxology, and and on and on. We we close with a sermon, more theology, and then we close the service with praise to God, a doxology. Shai Lin, who is a Christian hip-hop artist, I I, uh, knew him for a little while down at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. He says this, if you have theology without doxology, you just have dead, cold orthodoxy. But if we have doxology without theology, you actually have idolatry. We need to know who it is that we are worshiping, and once we know him, we ought to worship him. We actually uh, went to, uh, on Saturday, uh, Luke once again played uh, in an an orchestra, a very select orchestra, Uh, but this time it was, uh, the orchestra was kind of, not, I don't want to say a side thing, but uh, whereas the, the last concert we went to, the orchestra was the only thing, this time it was a select few string members who, who played along with a huge choir, the PMEA choir. So it's a district choir made up of, of all kinds of uh, students from high school, high schools all around, the, the best singers that the schools have. And it was amazing, and, and they played uh, various... Um, different styles, and, uh, and, and it was really uh, just beautiful to sit and listen to them. But I have to tell you that the singing that we do here as a choir of God's people is far greater to me than what I heard on Saturday. It's not because we're more talented. We're not. Some of us might be. But it's because we as a choir are lifting our voices to praise God Almighty. There was praise given to God on Saturday, not only by the words, some of the songs were actually old hymns, but again, because God is given glory when his common grace is shown in this world. But the doxology, when we have theology informing our doxology, the praise is that much greater. And Paul says, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen.
Our call to worship this morning said, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. When we give God glory, we aren't giving him something that he doesn't have. That's not what ascribing glory to him. He has all the glory, far more than than we would ever have or be able in any way to give him. When we ascribe him glory, we're not giving him something that isn't already there. We are acknowledging what he is. We are acknowledging who he is and what he's done. We are giving him glory for who he is and what he has done. And that's why if you ever pay attention to the songs that we sing here on Sunday morning, uh, they are heavily weighted towards songs that are about who God is and what he's done. They are not primarily about how we feel about who he is and what he's done. And the reason we do that, it's not that those songs are wrong. Uh, There are many great Christian uh, artists who have written songs in the moment about how they feel about the Lord. But when we're singing on Sunday morning, we have a lot of people here who came in with a lot of different backgrounds and a lot of different mornings. I came in here this morning, believe it or not, trying to preach this sermon, having lost my wallet. I have no idea where it is. It had money in there. It has all my credit cards. I don't know where it is. So I'm sitting here stressed out this morning. Some of you may have come in here this morning with uh, a lot of heaviness on your heart. The last thing that you or I need to be doing is singing about how we feel when it's not accurate. But every single one of us, no matter how we feel, can absolutely lift our voices to who God is and what he has done. Because regardless of how we feel, that is always true. Paul is in prison as he writes this. He isn't ignoring that fact. He hasn't ignored it. He's even talked about it. He's in prison and and he's awaiting a, a trial where he might, in fact, be executed, be condemned. He's not living there under some delusions of grandeur. He doesn't live in a fantasy world. And yet, despite the the condition he's in, he can explode with praise to God. And the reason he can is because who God is and what he has done is true regardless of where Paul is or isn't. Paul's temporary situation is not dominating his thoughts. God's eternal truths are dominating his thoughts. Just think back to all the truths that we learned in this short letter of Philippians. Paul has told us that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. Paul has told us that to live is Christ, but because of Christ, to die is gain. Paul has told us to to depart and be with Christ is far better than being alive. Paul has told us that Jesus, though he was in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to grasp, that he made himself nothing and that he did that for us. He's told us that that one day, at the end of history, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's told us that Jesus will one day transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. He's told us that we don't need to be anxious about anything. 
but that instead that we can let our requests be made known to God and that the peace of God, which surpasses, far surpasses all understanding, will be ours. He has told us that it is through the strength of Jesus that we can endure all situations. Whether we are brought low or whether we abound, he's told us that according to the riches of glory in Christ, God will supply every need that we have. Whence he has written all of that and thought of all that, what, what is a little prison sentence? It pales in comparison to what he just told us is true about God and what God has done for us. And then he says, beginning in verse uh, 21, he says things that he's already said. He, in a sense, comes full circle. He ends the way he began, Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. That's Philippians 1.1. He ends here, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. He begins by speaking about saints, and he ends by speaking of saints. Well, I said this in the first sermon, but it's worth repeating. Uh, In fact, we had a a guy at the men's study on Tuesday ask the question, "What, what is a saint? What does Paul mean by that word? Because I think when we think of saint, that word, uh, generally speaking, I think we, we think of a super important religious figure in, in, in church history. Somebody who was maybe uh, ultra-religious or, or did something um, really great for, uh, for Jesus and was remembered in that way. And so we call that person a saint. But that's not what Paul means here. By by labeling them, these Philippians, as saints, he's not saying they've they've all done something magnificent and something that we ought to remember. He's simply calling them each what they are, which is a holy one. The word saint, it just comes right from the word holy. It it means holy one. And, And a saint is someone who has been called by God to be set apart for him. A saint is someone who reflects God. God is the ultimate holy one. God is the one who more than anyone else is set apart. He is other. God is creator and everything else is creation. And so God is the holy one. And what you find when you read the Old Testament is that God takes common and ordinary things such as bread or such as goblets or tables or, or things that we would find tents. Um, he takes these things and he sets these things apart to be holy, to be used for his special purposes. And that's what a saint is. A saint is a human being who God has chosen from before the foundation of this world and has set apart for his special purposes, ultimately for his special purposes in all eternity to praise him in glory. Right now, saints are hidden, if you will. If you're a saint, you know it. You know it because your heart has been transformed by the work of God, and you can tell other people that you are a saint. I mean, mean, maybe you don't want to use that word. 
That, that may sound a little self-righteous. But you can tell people in the world that, that you are one of God's people, that, that God chose you, and probably most people will look at you like you're crazy. But Scripture says that one day, and that the creation groans for this, that one day when Christ returns, the saints will be revealed for all to see. That what is hidden now will be revealed. That those who are not now his saints will see that you were right when Jesus calls you and sets you on his right hand and says, you are my saint. Enter into my Father's glory. But for now, saints have been set apart. We see Paul in Acts 9, what we heard read earlier. Uh, Paul was chosen by God to be his instrument. God says that. Uh, he says, look to, to Ananias, no, Paul is a chosen instrument of mine. I'm choosing him to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. We too, if we are a saint, are a chosen instrument of God. We, we may not have been chosen, as, as Jeff said, our, our conversion is certainly not the same, and, and our job is not the same. There's only one Apostle Paul in all of human history. However, we have been called and chosen to do something for God. All Christians, then, are saints. We've been chosen by God and set apart for His special purposes. And in verses 21 and 22, Paul speaks of four different groups of saints. You can almost think of it as like concentric circles going outward. The first group he speaks of is the church in Philippi, the, the church to which he is sending this letter. The second are the brothers that are with him in prison. The third group is the church in Rome. Remember, Paul's in prison in Rome. He's talking about now the larger church that's there. And the last group that he speaks about is part of that church in Rome, but what he calls the church in Caesar's household. Four sets of saints. And I think, you know, if they're reading this letter, I, I, hopefully for us as, as we're reading this, these final verses, that the further out that circle goes, the more encouragement it is to us. Let's look at the four different groups here. First, the church at Philippi. Verse 21, he says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Now, the NIV, if you're using that, some other translations say, greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. Now, obviously, I mean, that's not a terrible translation. Paul, I'm sure he means for every saint there in Philippi to be greeted. But strictly speaking, he does, in fact, say, greet every saint. And I think it's important to note that difference for two reasons. One, because by saying greet every saint, he's making sure that he wants every single member of that church to be singled out for greeting. Now notice, if you compare the end here to the beginning of Philippians, you note that the church, the local church, and we see this all throughout the New Testament, the local church has a structure of authority. Paul says in verse 1, to the saints, 
along with the overseers and the deacons. So he's talking about the elders and the deacons there. He, he's acknowledging that there's a structure. In fact, it was a structure that he helped put in place. You see him help appoint elders in every church that he starts. So, in the beginning, he's highlighting that there is a structure of authority, but in the end here, he's highlighting that though there is a structure of authority, there is no hierarchy of status. You see, though, though some saints, though, though some members of a church are called to serve as leaders, uh, some, like Jeff and, and myself, have even been called to proclaim God's Word. We're, we're just called teaching elders, elders that have been just trained or, or set apart and ordained by our denomination to stand up here and, and preach the Word of God. Though, though we've been called and set apart for different uh, roles and structures of authority, nonetheless, we are no more saints than any of you. Paul wants everyone from, you know, the, 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 the kind of most well-renowned overseer down to the newest member of the church. He wants them all greeted as saints. He's highlighting the equality of the saints. You see, every saint, if you think about it, Christian, and I mentioned this before, uh, we're, we're heading into a congregational meeting this afternoon. Uh, sometimes at congregational meetings, people can get a little angry at things. Uh, you know, if you've ever been to a PCA congregational meeting, sometimes it even, even happens here. Uh, rather than um, kind of ironing out differences throughout the year, uh, you know, coming to, to one of the pastors and saying, hey, you know, I, I'm kind of having this issue with the church. Sometimes people just save it all up for the congregational meeting, and then they air it all out, you know. It's like, I've got all these problems with, with the church. Um, but you see, if you think about it, sometimes the problems that you have are with other members of the church, and that's fine. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's expected. You're not always going to get along with everybody, uh, Jesus expects it. He says, if your know, brother sins against you, go to your brother. But think about this. Every member of the church, even the ones, again, that, that maybe annoy you or, or that get on your nerves, you don't quite like, they're, they're a little socially awkward, whatever, that person has been chosen by God. That person has been set apart by Him. That person belongs to Him and will one day live with you in glory. I mean, it, though you may reject them, God chose them. Now think about that. It's amazing. You know, when, you, when, when the service ends, do you tend, ask yourself this question, do you tend, if you're a member here, when the service ends, do you tend to run straight for your best friends and talk to them? That's one of the nicest things about Sunday morning, so I'm not disparaging that. One of the greatest things about Sunday morning is that your best friends that you haven't seen all week you get to see, and you get to be reunited with. But Michelle and I used to do that immediately after the service ended. When we were in our 20s, we would service end, run right to our best friends. Usually we were sitting with them anyway, so you know all we had to do was stand up and turn around, and they were right there. And then we went away to seminary. And we visited another church, and we actually kind of joined that church because uh, the, the pastor and I became friends, and the, the preaching was really good. But we noticed that, that every Sunday morning, uh, we would stand up and no one would talk to us. And everyone 
kind of had their own groups of friends. And so Michelle and I made it a point. We said, when we get back to Maryland, and by God's grace, we ended up back in the church we grew up in. We said, when we go there, we're going to make a point to always talk to someone we don't know before we talk to our friends. And I would encourage you, if, if, if you tend to go straight to your friends, I would encourage you to talk to someone you don't know and even work it out with your friends. We told our friends, look, we're going to do this. So when we ignore you for the first 15 minutes, it doesn't mean we don't want to talk to you. It just means after 15 minutes or so, we'll get together with you and we'll probably hang out the rest of the day. So just hold off while we greet other people because we don't want to see that happen to anyone else. Paul is stating that each saint is the same. And, and notice here, by saying greet every member, he's not specifying any by name. Now, that may not seem uh, weird, but if you read Paul's other letters, you'll see that he often greets people by name. He says, uh, you know, greet this person and that person. And, and, and I think maybe his longest list is, is to a church that he didn't even know personally. But here, we're talking about a church that he was probably closest with. We've talked about that, how Philippians was his joy and crown, how he called them his beloved, how close he was, how affectionate he was. And here, in the church where he knew them so well, he doesn't say one word about any in particular person. He doesn't talk about Lydia. He doesn't talk about the Philippian jailer. He just says, greet everyone. And I think he does that on purpose. Because remember, one of the main points of Paul's letter, this letter, was the disunity that was happening there. And he does highlight, you remember, two uh, very important godly women in the church who were having conflict, and which conflict was causing ripples in the church. And he says to them, here's how you ought to think about yourself. He, in, the, in the most important point, of this whole letter, in kind of the, the mountaintop section of the letter, he says, have the mind of Christ in you. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. And I think in this final greeting, he's putting kind of an exclamation mark on that point. He's saying, I love you all equally. <laughs> Greet every one of you in Christ. And then the circle widens. He says, look, the brothers who are with me greet you. There were brothers who were with Paul in prison. They weren't imprisoned with him, but they were there visiting with him. We know one, for instance, is Timothy because he mentions him. We know Epaphroditus is there because he's brought him the gifts. Uh, scholars speculate who some of the others might be, maybe Luke. We don't know who they are ultimately. We don't know the, all, the, all the brothers that are with him. But if you think about it, whoever is there with him in prison is visiting uh, a prisoner and by doing so, really risking their lives. Because we're talking about, again, the Roman Empire. We're talking about a man who is in prison because he has been telling people to worship and serve and proclaim allegiance to someone other than the emperor. This man, Paul, has been going around telling people that, that the Lord, that Caesar is not the true Lord, but that Jesus is Lord. 
and that you must fall at his feet and worship him, and he's been put in prison for it. And anyone who shows up and says, hey, I'm here to see my best friend Paul, who I love and who I agree fully with, is risking their reputation at the least, if not their lives. Again, as we've mentioned, it was Emperor Nero who was emperor at this time, the one who not long after this letter is sent would be burning Christians uh, alive to light his gardens. This is the emperor who set himself up as a god to be worshipped. Now again, Paul is telling them something that is quite encouraging. There are brothers here with me, risking their lives, who also send you greetings. But it's not only them. Paul says, believe it or not, Roman colony of Philippi, there are saints, all of whom in this area, in this church in Rome, who greet you. Now he is given another step removed from the members of the church in Philippi. These church members in Rome are Christians who almost certainly don't know that the, the men who are visiting Paul in prison, some of them know the people and the members in Philippi. But these members of the church in Rome, probably none of them know any of these members personally. None of them will probably ever meet them until they meet in glory. And yet, they are included in this greeting because when Christians belong to God, we also belong to each other. When we are chosen by God for his chosen instrument, we are also made brothers and sisters. And that's why, again, as I've mentioned many times, and why I prayed today, we pray in our pastoral prayer for our brothers and sisters all around the world. Probably none of us will ever meet any of them this side of glory. And yet we care for them because they're part of our family. We pray for them because we love them, because they belong to the same spiritual family as we. And sometimes, as Paul mentions here at the end, sometimes our brothers and sisters come from the most unlikely places. He saves the best for last. He says in verse 22, especially those of Caesar's household. Note the especially here. I can almost picture Paul with kind of a wry smile on his face as he writes this. Can you imagine Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, during World War II when he was imprisoned sending a letter to a church somewhere and saying, I want to pass along greetings from some members of Hitler's family who have come to faith in Christ. Imagine what that would have sounded like. Members of Caesar's household send their greetings to you. See, Paul knew that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. We heard in our uh, reading earlier that Paul was on his way to kill Christians when the Lord Jesus Christ changed him. And what's so touching about that account, one of the things of many, is that Ananias 
when he's told by God, you have to go lay your hands on this man Saul, who's a chosen instrument of mine and, and who's been changed by me to be a proclaimer of the gospel. Ananias says, but wait a second, isn't he here to kill Christians? You want me to go walk right up to this guy and lay my hands on him when he's been imprisoning Christians and killing them? And he was here for that very reason? And God says, yes. And what's so touching is when Ananias walks into the room, he lays his hand and says, Brother Saul. See, to him immediately, this is my brother in Christ. Whatever he did before is a thing of the past, and God will use him. We don't know what this household included. It, it may have literally included Nero's immediate family members, but oftentimes when we think of household, we, in our 21st century, we think of those who sit around our dining room table, maybe some in our extended family. But, but in that day, household included lots of people. Household included your servants. Household included those who, who worked for your house. If you were kind of a wealthy person, you had a larger household. And all of those people were included. Well, Nero had the largest household in the world. I mean, this guy had thousands of people serving him. So when Paul says those of Caesar's household, it no doubt included, I can only imagine, some of the Praetorian Guard. Remember, the Praetorian Guard were like Caesar's bodyguard. They were like the Navy SEALs of that day. And because Paul was waiting to go before Caesar on trial, these Praetorian Guards were chained to him, literally chained 24-7, and they would take shifts. Can you imagine? I mean, like, none of these guys would have actually gone to a synagogue to hear Paul preach. So God brought them to him, right, by, by other means. I mean, these guys, Paul had a captive audience. Every day, 24-7, person after person, he had a revolving door of people, Gentiles, who needed to hear the good news of the gospel. And as far as Paul was concerned, he could be a dead man anyway. What difference does it make if he continues to proclaim the gospel while in prison? And what Paul has already said to them is this. Listen, Philippians, I want you to know. See, because, just think about it. If you're one of these Philippian Christians, hearing that Paul is in prison has got to be the biggest blow to your faith. Ten years ago, this guy shows up on your doorstep. He proclaims that not Caesar, but Jesus is Lord, that you ought to worship him and serve him. And you've hitched your wagon to this guy. He's supposedly Jesus' prime instrument. Jesus has chosen him to go all around the world and preach the gospel. And now the guy's in prison? You mean the Lord that I'm worshiping couldn't even stop this man from getting caught and imprisoned? Who am I following? I've risked my life. I've given up everything. They're living in a Roman colony under persecution, what we've heard. Perhaps risking their own life. And Paul, knowing this, says, I want you to know that what has happened to me, that I've been put in prison, has served to advance the gospel. See, it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He told them that earlier in chapter 1, and here at the end, it's like he puts the final exclamation mark and says, I wasn't kidding when I said that. 
There are some in Caesar's household who are now your brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul closes here in verse 23 with a good word, a benediction. We have a doxology and now a benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And again, Paul comes full circle. Philippians 1-2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And here at the end, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And so we too end this series where we began with the unmerited favor of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, that is what it's all about. From beginning to end, just go back through this letter when you get home if you want to and look at it from beginning to end. In some way, every single thing that we have is tied into the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing that we have that is not in Christ. And Paul ends by saying, do you understand, Philippians, that the grace that you have received is from the Lord Jesus Christ? That's such an important phrase because back then they were told to proclaim Caesar is Lord. And Paul is saying, no, the one who has given you his grace is the Lord. Even though Paul is in prison, and even though these Philippians are surrounded by a twisted and perverse generation, and even though Nero is on the throne, and even though compared to Nero, Paul and these Philippian Christians are insignificant to the world at that time, Jesus is still Lord, and Paul knew it. Paul proudly proclaimed that it was Jesus who was Lord, and Jesus as Lord was building his church, and Nero couldn't stop it. The Roman colony of Philippi and its pagan worship couldn't stop it. Nothing in human history could stop it. And friends, nothing today can stop it. In Paul's day, as he wrote that letter, it probably looked to everyone alive that it was Nero who had all the power. Paul was some insignificant Jewish preacher who had thrown away a life of ease to suffer for an even more significant Jewish carpenter from Podunk, Nazareth. What a shame people must have thought. But fast forward 2,000 years, Nero is barely remembered, and the Apostle Paul towers over human history. But even he fades into obscurity when compared with that obscure carpenter from Podunk, Nazareth, who reigns as Lord of all of human history because before he was the carpenter in Nazareth, he was the Lord from all eternity. See, Christian, rejoice, because one day when history draws to a close, on that day, you and I are going to be gathered with all the saints from all of history, and we will sing praises to our Lord and King who has redeemed us by his blood. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this reminder. Thank you for this wonderful letter. Thank you for all of the truth that it proclaimed to us. And Father, as we depart 
today. Help us never to forget who you are and what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.